Eid Mubarak, that means Happy Eid. Today, around the world, millions of Muslims are observing Eid al-Fitr, a holiday following the end of Ramadan. And in honor of these special events, we've chosen a selection of books that feature faith, strength, and celebration. listening to Midtown Bookshelf on Midtown Radio. I'm Serena McDermott, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Allison Dijak. Hello. And Matt Rappel. Good to be with you. I'm also pleased to be able to share a clip from our first ever Midtown Bookshelf guest, Della Aman. Della will be sharing with us about Ramadan and Eid. Here she is. My name is Della Aman, and I've been a Muslim for about 45 years. And we're really excited. This is a month called Ramadan, and it changes year-round because we go by a lunar calendar. Uh, so it changes every year by about 11 days. And Ramadan is important because this is the month in which the Quran was revealed to the Prophet Muhammad uh, from God to through the angel Gabriel and then to Muhammad. Uh, so we fast from sunrise to sunset, no water, nothing by mouth. If you smoke, no smoking um, or anything like that. Della goes on to explain that during Ramadan, some people might not be fasting for a variety of reasons. She talks about young children, people with developmental disabilities or health issues, or those who are pregnant or nursing. We also then at the end of this time, it's either 29 or 30 days, depending on when the new crescent moon is seen, uh, then we have about three days of Eid. And this is like a celebration and everyone gets new clothes and candy and <laughs> just, you know, there's special treats in the families might have passed down, um, visiting, and seeing your relatives or visiting friends, uh, prayer at the mosques, a uh, special prayer for the Eid morning. Uh, so it's an, it's an exciting time, uh, both Ramadan and the Eid. Thank you to Della for sharing with us about those traditions associated with Ramadan and Eid. Now for you, Matt and Allison, I have a question about whether you have any personal connections to Ramadan or Eid. Um, when I was in university, actually, I worked with um, the university's ESL department and I like ran programming for international students. And a lot of them uh, came from uh, countries where they, they celebrated Ramadan and Eid. And so it was always really important that when we were planning different activities, you know, we would do day trips to the zoo or a sports event or Toronto or Niagara Falls. Um, we were making sure that we were conscious of uh, what students might be uh, willing or not willing to do while they were fasting, you know, not doing activities that were centered around food or ones that were maybe particularly strenuous out in the hot sun or something. So, yeah, I, I've been able to meet some some people over the years that have taught me a little bit more about it, which is it's really interesting for me. I think the, the closest personal connection that I have is um, my, the church that, that I attend, the Mennonite Church, we had a, a interfaith dialogue um, where we had people of different faith 
come into our church and, and explain a little bit more about their traditions and their celebrations. And then uh, we had some representatives from our church go into mosques and, and synagogues around the region to talk a little bit about some of our traditions. So we had um, uh, some, some different representatives from the Muslim uh, church come in and share a little bit about Ramadan and about Eid. And that was really special because it is really um, important that you have interfaith cooperation and interfaith dialogue, and you can appreciate and respect the different celebrations, and you can make connections in between the celebrations in different faiths and the celebrations in your faith. You know, for example, there is, you know, uh, I think an overlap in terms of the meaning of the celebration between Ramadan, um, you know, fasting, reflection, and prayer, and then in the Christian um, tradition of Lent, where you give up something, usually it's it's food, and it's supposed to be a time when you're more mindful and more reflective about the things that are going on in your life. So I think it's really important to have those connections and, and dialogues in between different faiths, because there are a lot of similarities, and you grow uh, you grow a, a big respect for, um, for the traditions and celebrations of other faiths and the people of other faiths when you have those type of dialogues and uh, connections. That's wonderful. And that sort of leads me into my second question, which is that as teachers or, you know, like parents, we often want to share different cultures or practices with the children in our lives, the ones, those practices and cultures that are different from our own. So for example, our social studies curriculum includes expectations for learning about community traditions. So when you're trying to share those those with children, what do you consider? What do you do to make sure that you're sharing in a way that's respectful and accurate? Um, I think for me, a big thing is making sure that if you do have a student that identifies with that faith or or their family celebrates a certain tradition, that you're not putting them on the spot and kind of forcing them to be the one to teach the class about that. Like you may have a student that's fasting, but they might not want to share with the class about it. They might, like they might be interested to, to explain something that they're doing, but but they also might not be interested in sharing. Like just because they are celebrating that doesn't mean that they are the expert on it or that they want to like be the representative of that holiday in your class. It reminds me of when I was living over in Sweden and I would often get asked, oh, do Canadians do this? Yeah. Do Canadians think this? And I thought, okay, this is tricky. You know, first of all, not all Canadians are the same. And second of all, I don't know that I can be the spokesperson for all Canadians. Yeah. But, you know, in, in some cases, I would answer and others, I would just say, you know, there's a lot of differences. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think it's also important. Um, you know, you definitely don't want to put um, students in your class on the spot and make them responsible for sharing things because uh, that's not fair to them. But also it is important for for teachers to bring in voices uh, that are authentic um, because a lot of teachers, you know, myself included, I don't have a firsthand perspective or a very deep perspective on a lot of traditions that are outside of my own culture, nor should I necessarily educating other people on on the traditions of other cultures or other uh, other groups. So I think it's important in order to have space in your classroom for um, authentic voices, whether that is, um, you know, someone from a local religious group or, um, you know, someone who has, you know, who is from another, from, uh, um, you know, another part of the world who has more experience in that, that they are able to come in the classroom and talk to the, the students about it. Because really, 
they are, you know, those people who have the experience and those people who have the knowledge should be the ones explaining these important and um, and, and uh, very personal um, aspects of culture, not necessarily the person who just is tasked with it through the, the social studies curriculum. So that's a really great tip for our readers, or sorry, our listeners who are readers. When you're out there picking out books uh, to read for yourself or to share with the kids in your life, take a look at those authors' notes and at the descriptions about the author, because that's going to tell you a lot about that person's personal experience with the topic that they're writing about. If you're wanting to read a book about Ramadan or Eid, choose a book from an author who celebrates Ramadan or Eid, because that's going to give you a more accurate depiction. Now, we're going to kick off our music for the day with a song from Harris J. He's a, a British Muslim artist, and while he's not Canadian, he has been called the Muslim Justin Bieber. This song was just too perfectly suited to our topic today to pass up. This is Harris J's Eid Mubarak. Yet today when we all come together, having fun making beautiful memories. Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, such a great day for everybody. Salutation, Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah Such a great day for everybody around the world It's time to celebrate more Chalo, chalo, sab Eid manai, jashan manai And welcome back to Midtown Bookshelf on Midtown Radio. Today we are celebrating Ramadan and Eid by bringing in some different books from some different Muslim authors. So, Serena, what book have you brought in today? Well, I've chosen a book that's special because it really reflects the realities of a group that's often left out of picture books, Young Muslims in North America. This book is sort of a slice of life story that can be a mirror for Muslim children in our lives and for non-Muslim children can act as a window into a different way of life. This book is called A Party in Ramadan by Asma Mobin Uden and it's illustrated by Laura Jacobson. Lena twirled around in front of the kitchen table, breathless and excited as her mother pulled out an invitation from the large envelope. Mom, Julia is going to have a pony at the party and we get to ride it. Flecks of confetti fluttered out of the envelope onto the table. I never rode a pony before. Lena stopped twirling when she saw her mother's expression change. What's wrong, Mom? She asked. Lena said Mrs. Ahmed. Uh, Julia's party is next Friday during spring break. 
This year, it will be the first Friday in Ramadan. Ramadan? Lena looked into her mother's eyes. I'm going to fast that day, she said. But I can't miss the party. Her mother was quiet for a moment. Then she said, Lena, I know the party means a lot to you. But do you want to fast on a different day? That would be okay. You're still too young to fast every day. But Auntie San is coming on Friday. We're all going to have iftar dinner together after we break the fast. I don't want to give up fasting that day. Lena walked over to her mom. The party's in the afternoon. Can I just go and not eat or drink anything? I'll be home before iftar time. Her mother hesitated, then nodded. Yeah, thanks, Mom. Lena hugged her mother and then started twirling again. The day of the pony party finally arrived. In the entryway of Julia's house, Lena and her mother introduced themselves to Julia's mother, Mrs. Bernard. Lena's mother explained that because Lena was fasting, she would not be eating with the other girls. Oh, but we're not having a meal, Mrs. Bernard said. We're just having cake and punch. She can't eat or drink anything at all during the fast, said Lena's mother, not even water. Not even water, asked Mrs. Bernard. Her voice seemed very loud to Lena, who was embarrassed to think her friends might hear. Julia and some of her party guests came to see who had arrived. It's Lena, they cried. Julia, Amy, and Cindy ran and gave Lena a hug. Gratefully, Lena gave her mom a quick hug and headed down the hallway with her friends. And here Lena gets to take a pony ride. After the pony rides, the girls played tag and laughed and chatted with each other in the warm sunshine. Racing around made them thirsty, and Lena's classmates decided to have some lemonade. Then Lena remembered that she was fasting. She didn't care about missing the lemonade. She was having a lot of fun at the party. It was easy to be here and fast at the same time. Her mom had been worried for nothing. While the girls were having lemonade, Lena decided to swing. She pumped her legs and sailed high in the air. She closed her eyes and imagined she was flying as wind rushed across her, lifting the edges of her hijab. As the swing slowed down, Lena realized that she was thirsty. Cold lemonade began to sound good. Lena thought about how refreshingly tart and sweet lemonade tasted and how she liked to let the ice cubes from the drink melt in her mouth. She decided to ask mom for lemonade at iftar time. After playing tag and swinging so high, Lena was also starting to feel tired. All the girls were going into the house. Lena gladly got off the swing and joined them. The cool air felt good. Mrs. Bernard called the girls to the kitchen for cake. Amy stood by Lena's side. I'll stay with you. I'm not hungry anyway. Lena smiled at her friend. Oh, thanks, Amy, but I'm fine. Go and eat, and then we'll sit together. Don't miss the chocolate cake. Amy paused. Are you sure? She asked. Yes, I'm sure, said Lena. But Lena was not so sure. I'll see you in a little while. So here Lena goes to the family room to relax. She doesn't find it so easy to fast anymore, and she ends up falling asleep and waking up back at home. Lena's father sat down beside her as she sat up and blinked to clear the sleep from her eyes. How's my fasting girl, he asked her as he hugged her. She felt safe in his warm embrace. I'm fine, Daddy. I feel a lot better after sleeping. Lena's head did not hurt anymore, and she was not as tired. Well, the first few days of Ramadan are usually the hardest as your body gets used to the new schedule, he said. I heard you had a rough day. I'm proud of you for hanging in there. It's not easy sometimes, but God knows when you are trying hard to please him. Is it iftar time yet? Lena asked. Almost. Would you like to help me open the dates? Sure. Lena felt even better as she walked into the kitchen with her father. 
Her mother was stirring food in pots and Auntie Sana was cutting fruit. They hugged Lena and told her how proud they were of her. The hugs made Lena feel warm and cozy. The family shared stories as they prepared dinner in the kitchen. Lena's younger sister, Amira, ate dry cereal in the high chair. Lena helped daddy put dates on a plate and pour water into glasses. Her difficulties at the party seemed as if they had happened long ago. Finally, the time came to break the fast. Lena said the traditional prayer to herself in Arabic as she reached for a date. God, I fasted for your sake and I break my fast with food provided by you in your name. The sweetness of the date filled her mouth. It was followed by refreshing, cold, clear water. Then the family spread out sheets in the family room and prayed the Maghreb prayer tonight together as they did every night just after sunset. After the prayer, it was time for dinner. Lena was thankful for everything she ate. The muffins melted in her mouth, the meat was delicious, and even broccoli tasted good. And now we skip ahead just a little bit until after desserts, or sorry, just before desserts. As the family began eating dessert, the doorbell rang. It was Julia and her family and Amy and her mom. They were carrying chocolate cake from the party. Hello, Mrs. Ahmed, said Mrs. Bernard. We thought Lena might like some cake. We saved some for her. How kind of you. Please join us for dinner, said Lena's mom, warmly inviting the guests to the table. Lena ran to greet them and introduced everyone. Her mom brought plates for the guests and everyone began to talk and eat. Afterwards, as the girls ate chocolate cake, their parents sampled baklava and fruit pudding. Lena thought about how hard the late afternoon had been. She remembered how wonderful dinner had tasted in the evening. Fasting had made her appreciate and feel thankful for her blessings. Fasting also made her want to share what she had. In the warmth of the kitchen, with family and friends, Lena happily finished off her piece of cake. And that's the end. So in this book, I think there's a great opportunity to learn some new things about Ramadan. And there's also maybe a chance to reflect on you know, the experiences of kids who are fasting for the first time. So I'm wondering for you, Matt and Allison, was there anything that you really learned that stood out to you from this book? So I think this, this book did a great job of explaining lots of different concepts about Ramadan, including some things that I didn't know. Uh, for example, I wasn't sure whether or not Ramadan was something that was, that could be exclusively celebrated or exclusively um, enjoyed by just the people who are actually part of that faith or whether it was something that was okay to celebrate with people who are non-Muslim. So it was really nice to see how Lena's family welcomed in Julia's family at the end, and they were able to celebrate um, the, the Ramadan um, feast together um, during, um, you know, at the end of the book. That was really nice to see. Mm -hmm, to share that iftar dinner. That was yeah. nice. Yeah, and another thing for me was also uh, some neat specifics, I guess, about um, their iftar dinner in the evening. Um, I had never heard before that they broke the fast with dates um, and did did a prayer to kind of start off their meal together. So, so that was that was neat for me to learn that little special detail. And I really liked how the author sort of captured. Lena's feelings about the fast. There was that excitement about this is the first time she's participating, but also that sort of feeling of not wanting to be singled out. Like she she feels a little uncomfortable when Mrs. Bernard is making a big fuss about it. And I think it also gives us a chance to think about how we can be supportive friends to our Muslim brothers and sisters by, you know, considering their whether they're fasting or not and being like the friend who offered to sit with Lena while everyone is having cake. 
Yeah, I think Lena was a really sweet character in the book. It was nice to see that she was so um, committed and really loved this part of her faith. Um, you know, when when she was swinging and looking at the lemonade, I thought that the author might have made her, you know, go over and have a sip or something. I wasn't quite sure, but I loved that she just said, I'm going to make sure I ask my mom for lemonade uh, during our iftar dinner. So it was, they painted her as a really lovely character that was really committed and a really like strong, uh, strong role model probably for for young Muslim children. Mm -hmm. I think, Allison, also that, that, that Lena was also a very accurate portrayal because, mm -hmm. I mean, in some of the, in, in some of the classes that I've been in, you know, students and kids are so passionate and so excited about the different cultural traditions that they have. And they really enjoy, you know, sharing those things. I mean, they can be a little bit uncomfortable sometimes, but a lot of students really enjoy sharing their differences. Yeah, I agree. So following this book, I wanted to bring in another really strong, uh, great uh, Muslim woman who is an artist here. She wrote the song Last Ones. Um, speaking about the song to All Access Music, she was explaining how her younger sister actually was bullied for wearing the hijab and the sister came home and was just like needing to be consoled, was so upset. So the next day when Amal Nux, the singer, went into the studio, she said she didn't want to talk about what happened. She just started humming a melody, which her and her producer both liked. And from there, the words of the song just came to her. So I hope you guys enjoy this song. This is Last Ones by Amal Nux. We were so young, going with emotions, hoping this life wouldn't have to drown us out. We will be the last ones out. We stand afloat, sailing through the oceans to find the way. Nobody can stop us now. Cause we will be the last ones down. Hold the Write the grave. 
was Last Ones Down by Amal Nux. This is Midtown Bookshelf on Midtown Radio. I'm Serena McDermott, and I'm here with Allison Dijak and Matt Rappolt. Allison is about to share with us a story on our theme of faith, strength, and celebration. What book do you have for us, Allison? Thanks, Serena. So today I have brought in a book called The Proudest Blue, a story of hijab and family, written by S.K. Ali, with famous Olympian Ibtihaj Muhammad. So Ibtihaj Muhammad was the first Muslim American woman to compete for the United States in the Olympics wearing a hijab. This story was new to me and I'm so glad that I found it. It tells the story of two sisters, Faiza the youngest and Asiya the oldest who is wearing her first day of hijab. The author does a really beautiful job painting this sweet relationship and illustrator Hatem Ali turns Asiya's hijab into an incredible work of art with her bright watercolor illustrations. So this is The Proudest Blue. Mama holds out the pink. Mama loves pink. But Asiya shakes her head. I know why. Behind the counter is the brightest blue, the color of the ocean. If you squint your eyes and pretend there's no line between the water and the sky. It's the first day hijab. Asiya knows it. I know it. We're sisters. The next day I wait. A new backpack, new light up shoes. I feel special. I feel like twirling. Asiya comes out of the house, and I stop. It's the most beautiful first day of school ever. I'm walking with a princess, so I pretend I'm one too. But even princesses have to stop to cross the street. Asiya takes my hand in hers, says, Come on, Faiza. We speed walk it. Asiya takes me to my line first, hugs me goodbye. I turn to watch her leave, give a little curtsy to the princess, going to the sixth grade area. 
She's easy to see. Her hijab smiles at me the whole way. My first day hijab is going to be blue too. What's that on your sister's head? The girl in front of me whispers. A scarf, I whisper back. I don't know why a whisper came out. I try again, louder now. A scarf, hijab. Oh, she whispers. And as we turn to the next page, we're greeted with a really stunning image of Asiya's hijab blending into a bright blue sky with clouds all around her. Asiya's hijab isn't a whisper. Asiya's hijab is like the sky on a sunny day. The sky isn't a whisper. It's always there, special and regular. The first day of wearing a hijab is important, Mama had said. It means being strong. I turn, but I can't see the blue anymore. I run to the big kid's side. 27 steps to see Asiya. I need to give her another hug. I need to see her smile. Faiza? Asiya's eyes wonder why I'm here. Are you excited? I ask. About the first day of hijab? She nods, smiling big, and I feel better. Someone laughs from nearby. A boy, pointing at Asiya. Why? And once again, our illustrator has taken the bright blue hijab of Asiya and painted the fabric into big, crashing waves, filling the entire page. It's really, really beautiful. Asiya's hijab isn't a laugh. Asiya's hijab is like the ocean waving to the sky. It's always there, strong and friendly. Some people don't understand your hijab, Mama had said. But if you understand who you are, one day they will too. As we go on in the story, the little sister Faiza goes about her day at school. She draws a picture of her and her sister, both wearing hijabs with crowns on their heads like princesses. And she also sadly encounters another student teasing her sister for her hijab. As we return back to the book, Faiza remembers more words her mama said. Don't carry around the hurtful words that others say. Drop them. They are not yours to keep. They belong to those who said them. After school, I look around. I look for whispers, laughs, and shouts, but I only see Asiya waiting for me, like it's a regular day. She's smiling, strong. We cross the road hand in hand. I can't wait to get home to show Mama the picture I drew to show Asiya that I'm wearing the same hijab in it. Because Asiya's hijab is like the ocean and the sky, no line between them, saying hello with a loud wave, saying I'll always be here, like sisters, like me and Asiya. The end. So Matt and Serena, what did you think of that book? Well, I thought it was beautiful. I mean, just the way that the author used um, used the word, her word choice to describe the um, 
the, the the hijab and i mean I've, I've seen the illustrations of the book and it is truly gorgeous especially the way that the hijab is portrayed as being the ocean with the waves it's just absolutely beautiful so i thought it was a great story with a wonderful message mm-hmm. yeah such a, a joyful and powerful book yeah, I agree. I think that the relationship between the two sisters is so beautiful and just the way that um, Faiza is looking up to her older sister is is so sweet that she has that role model in her life and, you know, she sees her sister wearing the hijab for the first time as just such a special thing and something that she strives to be when she's older. I think that's that's lovely. And I really like how Faiza viewed... Asiya's hijab as so much more than just a scarf. You know, throughout the book, she compares it to the sky, to the ocean, saying it is strong, friendly, special, and normal. Now, I'm wondering, have you ever viewed or maybe even owned yourself a piece of clothing or an accessory that maybe held more meaning than just being that piece of clothing? You know, a safety net, a point of pride, perhaps? I have a few scarves, like neck scarves, that I've picked up uh, during my travels. I, I guess because I've visited a lot of places where I kind of need them for, for some sun protection or to kind of keep the sun off my shoulders. Um, so I've, I've got scarves from Nepal and Turkey and been gifted some from family members um, who have traveled in the Middle East. And those are always uh, pretty special to me because I tend to wear them a lot while I'm traveling. They also get have all these memories from those travels within them. So I can understand how we can feel uh, so connected to a piece of clothing and and just that the clothing can mean so much to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't think I've ever owned something that has been so um, important or so meaningful to me as Asiya's uh, hijab. I don't think that, I mean, the hijab for Asiya and for Faiza is so connected to their identity and so connected to them personally that I don't think anything that I have or that I own with regards to clothing um, really compares to that. I think maybe the closest thing that I can that I can connect to it is maybe my tattoo, I guess, um, because that's something where when I, I mean, for people who are listening, I have a little tattoo of a sheep on my right arm. And um, that's something where I it has a, a bigger meaning to me than just the imprint of the sheep that's that's on my arm. It has like, um, it means like more to me and has different under different sort of interpretations and different understandings for me than just the the design itself. So I think that that'd be maybe the closest thing I could relate it to. But I don't. I mean, when I was in high school, I had a hat that I always wore, but that was more so out of like insecurity than than anything. Uh, It's interesting how sometimes clothing, um, you know, it can be used as a bit of a shelter. You know, it's something that we're comfortable in. We kind of use that maybe to even hide behind. Um, I think of even, yeah, when I was in high school as well, um, you know, just worrying kind of about what you're wearing and thinking like, oh, if I just, you know, I'll wear this hoodie and (laughs) no one will take too much notice of me or something like that. but I really like in the story how um, Asiya is, you know, wearing her hijab really proudly and is just using that as something to show off her personality and show uh, her commitment to her religion. And, and she's just really proud to wear that. Mm-hmm. 
I think I guess something that would be really interesting too would be, you know, in this story we hear about the the character's feelings about the hijab and what it means to her. But of course that would be different across different just like you said, your tattoo has a different, a special meaning to you. And someone with a different tattoo would have a different special meaning. Um, so I would, it would be really interesting to hear from more people too, like maybe hear people's reactions of, of the book, people who wear hijabs and see what they feel um, as well, and maybe what's different for them. Now, Allison, I think you also brought in a song for us that connects to this story. Yeah, so I was really inspired by the lovely sister relationship in this story. So I have chosen Canadian sister duo Tegan and Sarah. This song is from their newest album, Hey, I'm Just Like You, which was actually written based on old demos of songs that they had written through their high school years. So they took old songs that they had recordings of and kind of reworked them uh, to make them fit their current music style. So this one seemed really fitting with the message of the book today, you know, managing the pressures that come along with being a kid and wanting to fit in. So here is All I Have to Give to the World is Me by Tegan and Sarah. Face myself in the mirror last night. I looked for things you said you like. The person I am when no one's around. Girl, I don't want to be found Don't you ever want to change Don't you ever want to change Talk myself out of being me Didn't want to fight my own worst enemy Wiped me out, did it all from you Destroyed myself, became more like you No one's very real today No one's very real today all i have to give this world is me that's it all i have to show this world is me that's it just me just me just me that's it Go ahead and choose, go ahead. 
that was All I Have to Give to the World is Me by Tegan and Sarah. You're listening to Midtown Bookshelf on Midtown Radio. We're celebrating today about Ramadan and Eid, and Matt Rappelt has brought in a book to help us share in those celebrations. Thanks so much, Serena. Two different holy celebrations from two different faiths colliding together on one very special night. Ramadan, the ninth month of the Muslim calendar, is a month of fasting, prayer, and reflection. Rosh Hashanah is the first day of the Jewish New Year. Because, both, because the calendars of both religions follow lunar cycles, every 30 years or so, those two celebrations align on the exact same night, with billions of Muslim and Jewish people watching around the world for the first sight of the new crescent moon. In the story I have today, we find ourselves preparing for one of those nights with two different families from two different cultures and with two different Mo's, Moses and Muhammad, living on the same street, each preparing for their own religion's very special night. This book, A Moon for Mo and Mo, by Jane Breskin Zalbin is the joyful tale of the birth of a young interfaith friendship and of the happy similarities that we can find in others if we approach them with the eyes of a child. I especially recommend looking up Murdoch Amini's brilliant modernist artwork in this book, which is at once so wonderfully childish and at the same time beautifully sophisticated, just like the story itself. So here is Jane Breskin Zalbin's A Moon for Two Moes, illustrated by Meridoct Amini. Moses Feldman lived at one end of Flatbush Avenue, and Muhammad Hassan lived at the other. One fall day, each boy went with his mother to a store right in the middle of the avenue. Bells tinkled when they went inside. The air smelled of spices and fresh teas. Baskets were filled with apricots, figs, dates, nuts, and pomegranates bursting with seeds that glistened like little red jewels. Each boy ran down the market's aisles. When Moses grabbed the powdered candies, Mrs. Feldman cried out, Mo, don't touch! As sweet nougats tumbled off a shelf, Mrs. Hassan warned, Mo, be more careful. Mo and Mo turned around and stared at each other. Sugar dusted their noses, cheeks, and their fingers. Are you twins? Asked Mr. Sahadi, the store owner, or cousins? Each boy shook his head. No. Mo peered at Mo's curly dark hair and brown eyes, just like his. Mo noticed Mo's olive skin and shy smile, just like his. Mr. Sahadi handed each boy a piece of thick taffy. Thank you, they said together, both grinning widely. Do you live around here? asked Mo. Mo pointed down the street one way. I live here too, said Mo, pointing the other way. Mo bounced his favorite ball, the pink rubber one that had lots of bounce, towards 
Mo. Mo bounced it back, and back and forth it went until it rolled behind Mr. Sahadi's counter. I think this is the ki- this kind of ball is better in a food store, said Mr. Sahadi. He gave them a large falafel ball, still warm, stuffed inside fluffy pita bread. I'm so full, I feel like I swallowed a big bowling ball, Mo said after he took his last bite. Me too, said Mo, patting his stomach. While Mrs. Feldman waited for her basket, waited while Mrs. Feldman waited with her basket, Mrs. Hassan waited with hers. When it was time to go, the boys waved. See you soon, they called out. But they didn't. Weeks passed. Mrs. Feldman was getting ready for Rosh Hashanah, the holiday celebrating the new year. And she, as she made a brisket and rugelach, Mo got pastry dough everywhere. Enough, Mo, sighed Mrs. Feldman. Mrs. Hassan was preparing for Ramadan, the holiest month of the year. As she roasted lamb and mixed date cookies, Mo spilled chopped dates on the floor. Enough, Mo, sighed Mrs. Hassan. Finally, their mothers decided to take a break and brought each boy to the park. The boys were surprised to see each other. Race you to the playground, yelled Mo. On your mark, get set, go, Mo yelled back. They climbed, swung, and played hide-and-seek. Meanwhile, both mothers glanced around at the clouded playground. Where were Mo and Mo? Mrs. Feldman ran in circles. Mo! Mo! Mrs. Hassan was also frantic. Mo! Mo! Fearful moments felt like endless hours. They decided to search together. That's when they found Mo and Mo, happy and muddy. The boys looked up from digging. Each mother held her son and cried tears of joy. You are the sun, moon, and stars, Mrs. Hassan said to Mo. And everything in between, Mrs. Feldman said to Mo. And the mothers hugged each other. As they walked home, Mo and Mo asked, Can we have a picnic in the park later? Both mothers nodded. At sundown, they feasted under a leafy tree. Mo brought date cookies and Mo brought date cookies crumbled with almonds. Mo bought rugelach rolled with raisins. Shalom, said Mo's family, wishing peace. Salam, said Mo's family, wishing peace. That night, the first sliver of the moon shone down on Mo. He looked out his bedroom window and whispered to the starry sky, A blessed Ramadan, Mo! Mo also looked out his bedroom window and whispered into the moonlit night, Happy New Year, Mo! And the same moon watched over both boys as they slept. Mo at one end of Flatbush Avenue and Mo at the other. And that's the end of the story. That's a really lovely story. Wow, so sweet. I was just smiling most of the time thinking about 
the little boys finding each other and just becoming instant friends. It's really beautiful. So I didn't think about this when I was first picking this book, but I think this book is even better when it's read aloud over the radio like this because there's no way of telling which Mo is which sometimes when you're listening to it. And I think that just accentuates the author's point that these boys, there's so many similarities between them. And they're really, I mean, even though they come from different cultures and different faiths, they're really just just boys living on the same street. And the author does such a great job of making the boys come to life. Like I can just feel their energy, their excitement, like they're they're just really great characters. Absolutely. Well, at the back of this book, after the story's finished, there are the recipes for the Jewish and Muslim dishes mentioned in this story. And of course, with the picnic and with the, the cooking, food really does play an important role in the story with Mo and Mo beginning a friendship at a local grocery store and then at the end sharing that picnic together in the park with their families. And I think that this is the author, uh, Jane Zalbin's knowing nod to food as an important bringer together um, of cultures and people in our world today. And I'm wondering, like, what do you think is, what, do you, what is it about food, and in particular, sharing food, that makes it such an important and strong stimulant for relationships, um, even, and maybe even especially, across people of different cultures and different faiths? Yeah, we sort of talked about this a little bit in our food episode, didn't we, about how food can bring people together in such a magical way. And for me, I think there's something, you know, it it's somewhat biological. Like we all are programmed to love that taste of fat and salt and sugar. And every culture has their own combination of these delicious ingredients. And when you taste some of these dishes, it's just undeniable. They're just undeniably delicious. So while we can get swept up in, you know, stereotypes and prejudices, there's something just undeniable when you take a bite of that, you know, delicious falafel or delicious regula, like you were uh, showing in the picture book. And when you taste it, it just, you can't help but say, okay, now that's good, no matter what other prejudices you might hold. So I think it's a great first step in breaking down those barriers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And and I think it's it's also amazing when you really think about it, there are so many similarities in the foods that we have across different cultures and across different countries. You know, mm-hmm. so many different cultures have their own version of a dumpling of some sort, whether it's you know, a pierogi or a gyoza dumpling, they're, they're all kind of similar. They just have their own little style to it. So I think when we really start to think about what foods make up our specific cultures, you know, they're all super special and uh, hold different meanings, but there are a lot of things that are similar when, especially when children start to think about it. I know um, you know, when I've been teaching kids about uh, different countries around the world, we'll sometimes do examples of food and they'll see something, they'll go, oh, that's like this that I have at home or something. So, you know, kids especially always love to make connections to things. And I feel like there's so many different ways to make connections, uh, even across different cultures and countries. Yeah, and I think also that this idea of food being a gift to a gift to everybody you know, I mean, uh, like you said, Allison, there is so many similarities in between the recipes, 
but also there's so many similarities in between ingredients. You know, I mean, every a lot of cultures have uh, used the, the similar ingredients in different ways. And I mean, those ingredients, it's very easy to see those as being gifts, not just to one culture or not just to one people, but to the to all people and to everybody. So the fact that people are able to take those gifts and then turn them into different things, I think there's something really special and really creative. And you can really appreciate and respect that about those little you know, little like similarities, but also then those little differences that you have in, in between that as well. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much, Matt. That was a really lovely book and gave us a lot to think about. What song did you bring in today for us? Uh, so the story of interfaith friendship in A Moon for Mo is so simple and so beautiful. And Jane Breskin-Zalbin does an amazing job of capturing how friendship can blossom in spite of, or perhaps because of, our littlest similarities and differences. On the eve of Eid al-Fatar in 2018, almost a thousand Muslim people, Jewish people, and Christian people gathered together in Jerusalem's holy tower of David Museum for an incredible display of interfaith solidarity. Together, at midnight, they sang the iconic Bob Marley song, One Love, with verses in English, in Arabic, and in Hebrew. Here is a recording of that incredible and powerful performance, proof positive that, just like in our story, truly beautiful things can take place when we get together, take stock of our similarities and our differences, and celebrate all together under the light of a new crescent moon. Here are more than 800 interfaith voices singing Bob Marley's song, One Love, on the night of Eid al-Fatar two years ago.
That was one love. What a great way to end our program. And that brings us to the end of our special celebration episode where we've explored stories of faith, strength, and festivities. Today on the program, you heard me, Serena McDermott, read A Party in Ramadan by Asma Mobin Udin. You heard Allison Dijak read The Proudest Blue by Ibtihaj Muhammad with S.K. Ali, illustrated by Hatem Ali. And you heard Matt Rappel read A Moon for Mo and Mo, written by Jane Breskin-Zalbin and illustrated by Meridoct Amini. Next week, we have another brand new episode of Midtown Bookshelf. May 30th is National Creativity Day, and we will be getting a little creative by celebrating with you on the 31st, sharing books and songs that inspire, express, and cultivate creativity. From all of us here at Midtown Bookshelf, thanks for tuning in and keep reading. Ooh.